Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Neil Rogers runs a very successful marketing business, and he gained all of the knowledge he needed for success in what some might consider an unlikely place. It's the title of his book, Bar Tips, Everything I Needed to Know in Sales I Learned Behind the Bar. After almost 30 years of success, Neil, what made you share your secret now? Uh, I started uh, during COVID. I, I had always written like little ditties and that type of stuff, but never, never wanted to tackle a book. But I had some pieces that I pieced together to start this one. Um, we had had a uh, a birthday party for a one of the friends, one of the guys we worked with at this place called the Full Sail, which was my first bar job, and uh, it was very emotional evening. You know, we were kids when we were doing. I was 19 years old when I started working there. So we had this marvelous night. I just wrote a whole thing on the experience and you know how we felt back then and what it took to be part of it and. And then I, I had also written about where that where that bar is, is a summer place where we summered every year. So that was I wrote about that. So I had those couple of pieces for the first couple of chapters. And then I because I discovered that um, my hospitality roots had a real effect on my sales career. So I had that piece. And then I had the premise. The premise is that, you know, I never left bartending. I've been bartending on the road for 30 some odd years. You probably learned so much about all of the people who came in and ordered drinks from you. Weren't you their psychiatrist, best friend, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody wants to know the bartender, right? Correct. So, uh, one of the big messages for people to glean out of it is work on your listening skills, mm. right? So that, and then, you know, especially if you're going to be a salesperson. And that's what a bartender does. They listen to what your how your day went, what you're interested in. So it's kind of what you do when you're on the road selling. And I always tell people, and it's an old adage, two ears, one mouth, use them in that proportion. I do a lot of practicing on it now. I make sure that when I go somewhere, I always sit at the bar or at the counter and um, I, engage, I engage people and I let them tell their story. Well, you know, just looking at someone and making them feel like they're heard. Mm -hmm. So many people just want to be heard. You know, and they just go through, they don't feel like anybody really understands how they feel or why they feel the way they feel or why they do what they do. And if you're, if you're able to give them a nod and, and, and encouragement and make them feel like, yeah, I'm really, I really care about what you're saying to me. I think that right. goes a really long way. I really do. So, well, how do you lay out your book? I mean, it's not like tip number one. I mean, is it, it's, it's wrapped up in a story? Well, the stories, the stories on each tip. So oh. the first the first couple of chapters is that kind of memoirish piece, right? So one of the things I wanted to get across to the reader is that you have innate skills in, in the first couple of chapters. I'm appealing to the the average student. The the per, I, I joke when I speak on the topic. I say my my combined SAT scores and my class rank have one thing in common. <laughs> they were both in the triple digits. <laughs> So uh, my academic prowess, my academic intelligence wasn't as strong as my interpersonal intelligence, but I had intelligence. It's just different types of intelligence, according to Howard Gardner. 
in the frames of mind, right? Okay. Musical intelligence, interpersonal intelligence, intrapersonal intelligence. Now, I didn't know that back then, but in retrospect, it, it all makes sense. I mean, I was never going to be an engineer, never going to be a doctor. <laughs> right. It's going to be a sales guy. I found that when I served people as a bartender, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the feedback. I enjoyed making them happy. I enjoyed the whole process of it. I enjoyed introducing him to other people that like-minded. Maybe they get along. Maybe they'd like to play a game of darts. Yeah. Whatever that would be. Right. So again, so I had those pieces. And then I just started laying out what is what were the important things with being a bartender that are akin to being a salesperson, a good salesperson. How you say hello, the, proper, the importance of the proper greeting. You know, being organized, the most organized wins. Time management, how do you manage your time? Are you on time? Mm. Are you one of those people that's always fashionably late? That's not going to fly in the sales world. And you're going to always be behind the eight ball. If you show up at the, your bar job and you get two or three other people back behind the bar, they gotta, and you showed up late, they got to cover you. Right. You know, so you're, you're, you're leaving your team. Um, what's your attitude? What is your aptitude? How do you look? What's your appearance? Is it, is it an important chapter? Product knowledge. You know, how do you know your products? And by the way, are you snowing them if you don't know your products? If you don't know, find out and get back to them. And then peripheral knowledge, you know that uh, when you walk out of a hotel and you ask the doorman, where can I get a good steak? Right. That's that's peripheral uh, knowledge. I see, yeah. That's very important. And then we do do a, a chapter on the armchair psychologist, which really talks about, really gets into listening. Do you do it like, um, take so-and-so, for instance, he was doing blah, 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 and this happened. Do you tell a story with each tip? Yes. Okay, taking ownership when a business problem arises. Okay. Right? So I talk about how I came up with that, where that came from. It came from a mentor when I was in the food business, when I sold wholesale, when I sold from food distributor into, into uh, restaurants and, and, and hotels and whatnot. Okay. And he was kind of a wiseacre kind of guy, you know, top to the tree sales guy in the you know, stack rankings, always one or two in the, in the company. He befriended me and mentored me a little bit. And one of the things he said to me, he says, Neil, Whenever anything goes wrong, start with yourself. What was my role in this? How could have I done better? You know, what can I do to, to have so this doesn't happen again? So as, as the story, one of the stories that goes with that is um, a woman came up to the bar and ordered a vodka martini extra dry. So Dennis, my buddy, made her a vodka martini extra dry like he always did. Up with a twist. Here you go. Here's your drink. Took a sip out of it. She goes, you know, that's it's not dry enough. Now, Dennis comes over to me and he just kind of whispers in me, whispers in my ear, and he says, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've never put a drop of vermouth in a martini. <laughs> Can't be any drier, right? But what he does is he goes and grabs a mixing glass, puts it down in front of the woman, pours it right in front of her, puts the twist in there. She takes a sip out of it and she goes, that's the one. So <laughs> what's the lesson to be learned there? You could have gotten a beef. You know, said no, no, no. I never put from I never put vermouth in a martini. Right. I haven't done that in fifteen. Right. You could have told him all the things he told me. Right. You know what? You decided I'm throwing out two ounces of booze and I'm making this woman. Yeah, so true, so true. Yeah. I relate to this. I I was I was mm -hmm. a waitress like through college mm -hmm. and after college, 
And I always said to myself, boy, if, if my career doesn't work out, I'm going back to waitressing. I absolutely loved it. And I loved every person I met and I loved serving them and I could screw up. I mean, I was delivering a vegetable tray and I tripped and it went all over the table and the people sitting there and they laughed and they didn't give me a hard time at all because they were regulars. They knew who I was. And it's right. all in the way. You're so right. It's all in the way you handle it. But we all have this desire to hang on and say, you know, I know what's right here. Like, it's very hard, don't you think, for people to to say, uh, all right, all right, the, the martini's not dry enough. All right. It, it, you know, it's hard for some people to say, I'll just pour it out and make another one because they want to be right. They don't want to let go. Oh, you're going to love this. <laughs> what? The, one of the quotes I have, well, what's my quote? Being, being right is overrated. Yes. That's in that chapter. Don't be pushing your rightness on anybody. <laughs> Put your rightness away. Doesn't work. So do you do sales training or something, Neil? I've mentored kids, okay. mentored people. I mentored people that were like me, didn't have a strong academic mm -hmm. background. I became a very good student, by the way, but I figured right. it out. I had to learn how I learned. Yes. Uh, but we, we have built a workbook to go along with the book. So we, we're, we're, we're going to be doing sales meetings and that type of thing. So... Uh, yes, the answer is yes. That's going to be a, a big focus for 2024. Sounds like a great sales tool, like trying to put your team together. Will you go out and do that for other companies? Yep, that's the plan. We've got, I've got, a, I think, two or three sales meetings lined up right now. I, I knew in the back of my mind, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I'm, I'm 65 years old. I've got something to say. I've got a track record. And now I've got it in print. And um, I want to say it. Well, good for you. Best of luck. Are you going to do a follow-up to this? I don't know. I think uh, I think the next book we would probably write here in the, in the Rogers household is one that has to do with our special needs son and our journey with that. <gasps> um, we very much use the same process that we use in bar tips. I mean, it's just the same stuff of, you know, using our, per using our interpersonal skills to, to move things along and make things better for him. So it's a uh, matter of fact, one of the get in front of mine said, uh, said to me, uh, this summer, he read the book and he goes, Neil, I, I really love the book. And is that how you did the other stuff too? I said, yep. That's great. That's how I created a, created the, uh, special needs education foundation. I, uh, and I also, um, started the first of its first of its kind special needs classroom at the community college here in town. That's great. Good for you. So, yeah. Giving back. So, yeah. Real pleasure to meet you, Neil. No worries. NRN for 23 years, Leo Storm has made a big difference in many lives, and it paved the way for the publication of his first book entitled Six Visits on Saturday. Um, yes, I was uh, in 2007, I was worked for a hospice agency, and I was an after hours and weekend on call nurse, and uh, I handled basically any problem that would come up after hours and uh, on the weekends. And so part of that was uh, death pronouncements as well. So that's kind of like the book is, uh, is about, about that day and about uh, how, you know, it started out. My first call was at six o'clock. It was a death pronouncement. And as the day went on, they just came in one right after the other. And, uh, after about 22 hours, I'd pronounced six people dead. 
Had you ever done that before? Uh, I had pronounced uh, a lot of people during the four years that I was there, uh, somewhere maybe a little north of 170 people, but never, never six people in one day. It, it had been one or two maybe was the most. And six people in one day, you know, you're dealing with six different uh, families, six different sets of, you know, maybe religions and things like that. So, you know, I had to shift gears all day long, just trying to keep in the game and, you know, and stay focused. It was a, a hectic day, but it was a, it was a day that uh, I think I can go back and pinpoint that I learned a lot about not just life and death, but I learned a lot about myself on that day, I think. How do you tell this story? Kind of uh, starts out, uh, give a little bit of background about how I got into the nursing profession. Then from there, it just kind of dives right into the story, starting with the very first person that uh, I pronounced, and uh, then it goes on from there. Some of the some of the chapters, there were interesting things and uh, wonderful things about each of the people that I pronounced. And the families tell you all about their loved one. You feel like you kind of knew them, even if you didn't. And so I just went from one one death pronouncement to the next. And some of those would delve off into other stories, other memories that I had during my career as a nurse. Not necessarily in hospice, but might have been somewhere else that I worked. Um, my second pronouncement was a uh, a lady, and during her life, uh, it was all about singing. She sang everywhere she went, in the church, uh, at, in the choir, at home, everywhere. So during the course of that visit, it kind of brought me back to a, um, a little boy that I took care of in a pediatric he had uh, just come out of the bone marrow transplant unit and had battled leukemia. He sang every day. He uh, kept his uh, his little tape recorder and it had an orange microphone attached to it. And he sang all day long. And so I kind of go back and kind of recount that story about how that kind of affected me. And it affected me in a very profound way. I've I felt close to that little boy my whole life and I've, I've written about him several times one of my guest columnist pieces was about him but it makes you feel uh, a little bit uh, sad when you lose them we wind up losing him and for me that case uh, I think left a lot of uh, it left a lot of unresolved feelings for me about death it brought out you know a little bit of anger some resentment you, you you ask yourself why all the time uh, especially when it involves children um, my youngest one that I lost was six months old so I had a lot of uh, a lot of feelings that came out especially when I worked with the kids it was just a why and it uh, it left me it left me with a lot of thoughts and feelings about death that I'd never really had really thought through um, it always came with the job I mean Every, every day you, you deal with death. But I think uh, the six uh, people that I dealt with that day really, really made me uh, start thinking about it almost to the point to where it became an obsession. I would think about it all the time. And you would wonder, you know, about your own life, you know, when, when you would die. Um, it brought out a lot of feelings like those. And so I think I felt good about writing this 
uh, because, you know, if I had those kind of feelings, I, I thought maybe there's probably somebody else out there that has the same, has gone through the same thing. How old was this little boy that had such a profound impact on I him? met him when he was three, and he passed away whenever he was five. But uh, this kid sang, <laughs> he sang all country music, and he had all these songs memorized, and it, you heard them so much that you you memorized them yourself <laughs> after a little while. So um, he, he had a profound effect on me as far as... Um, it's, you know, it was so many great memories we had with him and it made every, every day that he sang, it always, even if it was a bad day, it turned into a good day. You know what I mean? I don't even know how you deal, you know, being a nurse, you deal with death all the time, but it doesn't sound to me that you're immune to it. Like, I, how do you, how do you deal with the families? How do you keep it together? It's one of the things you learn early on in your career. You learn, I guess, how to keep your own emotions and your own feelings in check. And just you're just focused on, you know, the matter in front of you. And, you know, you're always expected to kind of know what to say and know what to do. And so you kind of have to repress a lot of those feelings. There were There were a lot of nurses that would have to pull out of a a case for a little while and you know and go to the bathroom and cry or just whatever they had to do but um it's one of the things you learned early on is uh you know you've got to you've got to you know be the one be kind of the rock so to speak and uh that's just pretty much how you get through your day if you have to go home and <laughs> cry write about it whatever that's that's just something you do when you're not on the job these these six visits on a saturday were they people of all ages were they people that were expected to die were they all in hospice they they were they were all in hospice uh, i think the youngest one was like 48 and my oldest one was uh around i'd say 91 so with hospice you basically qualify for it if two doctors agree that you have less than six months to live so um, they were all people that had, you know, illnesses that were inevitably going to lead to their death. What's your biggest question about death or fear? I, I think I don't think it's fear anymore. I think it's it's, you know, what's it going to be like after, you know, where do we go? Do we go anywhere? It's that it's that unknown. So I think that's uh, that's always been something in the back of my mind. I've set of beliefs that you know i kind of follow so i kind of feel like i know i know where i'm going but um you know when it comes right down to it you you always have that question in the back of your mind you know is is there is there something after after we live so that was for me that was the that was probably the the first and foremost question in my mind and in terms of your readers, what do you hope to leave them with? Well, you know, I think that the readers that I hope to attract to it are adults. You know, any anyone that's been touched by death and have been left with some unresolved feelings because of it, even throughout the course of that day, there was there was so many uh, feelings and stuff through the families that I picked up on. You know, there were some people that were you know that were angry and. Uh, 
there, you know, guilt and it was all, I picked up on different sets of emotions for every single family that I dealt with that day. So, you know, I hope that adults who read it, you know, and, and I hope that they are able to learn something a little bit more than just life and death. I'm hoping that they maybe learn some things about themselves that they weren't really aware of before they read. You going to keep writing? You still taking notes? I am. I've, I've actually, uh, I'm working on one right now. I'm about four and a half chapters in. Uh, it's called Peacekeeper. And like a, this, this book was about one single day. But like I said, I kept notes uh, for all those years. So I decided to pick 10 different situations, encounters, however you want to say it, and uh, write about those 10 different things. So that would be something that was more spread out through the whole course of my career. I just felt like after I wrote this one, uh, it was something I needed to get out of my system. But I had a little bit more to say about some of the stuff that I dealt with during my career. I always knew from day one as a nurse, you know, I always knew that I would write a book someday. Um, I just didn't think it would take me this long. Yeah, right. Leo, this is good stuff, man. You got me thinking. Right, right. You got to think about it. But um, I took a pen name because, you know, it was a true story. And so um, I renamed all my people. I actually used colors <laughs> for their last names. And so um, it was something because it was a true story. I wanted to make sure that, I, you know, that uh, that nothing ever got out or, you know, it was able to be identified in any kind of way. So you don't want the people that you worked with in the hospital that you were at to know that you wrote this book? Um, I would I would rather that they not know. Um, it's just uh, one of those things that from the very outset, I felt like I had to keep a lid on the uh, the true identity, number one, of the, of the uh, people that are in the story, but also on myself as well. So that has presented a challenge. I won't, I won't lie. Yeah, that definitely, you're going to have to like go out of town. <laughs> right. I'm going to have to, yeah, I have to put on my sunglasses and uh, wear my <laughs> cap backwards. Uh, Leo, I'm really glad I tracked you down. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. I think, I thank you. Roger N. Messer has had a very successful career as a personal injury lawyer in Florida, but this isn't a book about money. It's about the people he was able to help and the difference he was able to make that inspired his book, Tort Wars. I've always wanted to write a book. In high school, my, my high school senior English teacher told me, Roger, you, you know, you're a good writer. You could, you, know, you could make a living as a writer. I didn't know how you could do that. I was a very poor kid. And uh, I went to law school eventually and, and did very well doing that. So I don't know. I, I, I was really inspired by some of my clients and the stories I have are pretty interesting. And my wife's tired of hearing my war stories. And uh, when, I, when I get together with other attorneys of uh, like ilk, we, we, you know, we talk. And, uh, you know, I've been encouraged by a couple of them to write a book. And, and uh, about 10 years ago, I started with this one. And I finished uh, the first chapter, the first story. They're actually not chapters, they're stories. By far, it's about the best one in the book. I think it's the most meaningful case I ever handled. And I was, I finished that draft of that one, and I showed it to him, and he read it, and he told me it was very good. I need to finish it. And I started, and then every, I got about a third of the way through because I would do one, and then I would have a case to try and prepare for, and I'd put it aside. 
Now I do another one of the same thing. And about seven or eight years ago, I got really busy and I put the whole thing aside and forgot it. The pandemic uh, came and they locked the courthouse for two years. Oh. And I had a time to finish. Once I started writing, it flowed pretty easily, really. Um, the only good thing for me that came out of, the, out of the pandemic was it gave me time to finish my book. Tell me you this. Know, it's, it's 25 distinct. It's like short stories. Okay. Some of them aren't so short. The whole book is 440 pages long, 444 pages, I think. Wow, that's a that's a lot of book. And it's uh, it's a lot of book. Um, I actually had to, to chop it off. I had ideas for about another six or eight books. But I uh, wrote some notes on some of those. And, and you know, there's still some interesting ones out there. But, I mean, at some point, you've got to stop. Um, I think I could have written two books real easily. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, I don't know uh, how it's going to do. It's um, when I finished the first draft, you know, I, I was looking for a place to finish. And suddenly I had a real awesome case that um, it was a death case. Um, and um, uh, it resulted in my biggest verdict. That was in 2019. It was it was like a $10 million verdict. Wow. And uh, it was... Um, uh, the, the death of a young girl who was 18 years old was was already a college junior, brilliant, beautiful girl. She was driving her dad's brand new F-350 pickup truck. Uh, she lived in the country with her father, west of Fort Pierce, and she and her best friend were riding into town uh, towards Fort Pierce in the evening. It was 7 o'clock at night, 7.30 in February, so it was dark. And she was doing 63 and a 65 according to her GPS when she took off her foot off the accelerator one second before the two girls died. They hit a prevost motor home going the wrong way at night with all the lights off being driven by a 99-year-old man. Oh, Jesus. What else could go wrong in this picture, right? There's other stuff, too. The guy had lost his license earlier for a mental, for a mental problem. And uh, he, his, uh, two of his no-good children helped him get his license back, and they cheated to do it. And he'd had his license back 23 days before he killed these girls. He, he lived in Michigan. And he was having a vacation with his girlfriend down here when, they, when the thing happened. And he yeah, he had, he had a gold digger girlfriend in the, in, the, in, the, in the prebus with him. She was the only survivor of the accident. We sued her, too, and settled with her. We settled her part of the case for a million bucks before trial. Okay, so, I mean, that was, that was a pretty interesting story. And we wound up, we got more, a bigger verdict than the insurance. And then, and then we went to Michigan and busted the guy's trust. It took a long time. It, it wasn't wow. that, that, that ended because COVID broke, also locked the courthouses in Michigan. So it was like, until COVID was over, we didn't really finish. Right. There's a lot of stuff in there. One thing that inspired me to, to write the book early on was a lady, um, her name was Doris Trofe, and, and she asked me to put her name in the book. And... Uh, Doris is a lady from Vero Beach, Florida, which is up the highway a little ways. And her daughter was killed by a drunk driver mm. back in 1981 when I was just a really young lawyer. I mean, I hadn't been practicing very long at all. And um, uh, the guy was, was a foreign student from uh, Venezuela. He was uh, learning to be a pilot at that school up in Vero Beach where they trained all the... Uh, the 9-11 hijackers. All the Saudi Arabian people that, that flew the planes in the, into, the, into the World Trade Center. Yep. Because that place was famous for training foreign students who had money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so anyway, that's how that, that's how that one started. But uh, she uh, came to my office. She wanted help adopting her, her two grandchildren. And she said she didn't know how she was going to feed them because her husband had a heart attack and was being retired from the post office. 
This lady was a uh, telephone operator and had been told that within a year she was going to lose her job because of automation. Mm. And she said, we don't know how I'm going to feed them, you know, and it went from there. The guy had no coverage, no, no insurance. You have to read the book to tell, you know, we got a million dollars from a couple of places. Back in 81, that was a ton of money. And uh, it was, you know, it's how we got there is kind of interesting. I say we, it was, I was, I've always been a very small law firm. I never had more than two or three lawyers in, in the law firm, wherever I was working. So, so this woman was able to raise her grandchildren. Oh, yeah. And she also went on to uh, become the state president of the MADD. Oh. And she went to Tallahassee on a regular basis and lobbied to have the law changed uh, from legal limit for alcoholic blood sugar from, from 1.0 to down to 0.08. And we succeeded ultimately, but it was, you know, a long struggle. Uh, the things she did and looking at her determination, uh, she's only referred me at least uh, probably over the years, 10 or 12 cases, wow. a couple of the seven figures. I mean, this lady was, was in fact, after, after the book was published, I, of course, bought her. I've, I've had several meals with her. I bought her lunch and gave her a, a, signed, a signed hardback, so. You know, it's that's the third story in the book, and it's her story is pretty interesting. Well, it's nice to hear that you know it's not just about winning a ton of money. It's all about the people. The whole thing is not about the money. It's about the people. Yeah. Okay, and um, it's not about criminal law, except there's a lot of crimes in the book. We represent we represented victims. There was one attempted murder case in the book. I call it attempted murder, and it's the, the the kid that committed the crime was was 16 and was treated like a juvenile he was you know he slapped on the wrist but uh it was it was bad but uh, my client in that case was a uh a 19 year old kid who graduated from high school the year before and was going to college and his friends that were 18 had just graduated from fort pierce central high school and he was invited to a graduation party out west in the country west of fort pierce and you know some some kid lived out there and uh, they were uh, maybe 50 kids in the crowd there. They were standing around. Someone in the middle was talking. They were all looking, milling around. And this one kid who was not invited to the party uh, drove up in his car, left the, left the motor running, and got out and sneaked up behind the crowd and decided he would try to set a nunchucks on somebody he didn't know. And he hit my client in the head with nunchucks and fractured his skull. And then took off running, got in his car, took off, and the other kids were chasing him, and they wrote the tag number down, and and less than an hour later, the police were at the guy's house, and the car was still warm, and the bloody nunchucks were on the the seat. That story is, it it has a good ending. Most of my stories have good endings. I didn't, over my career, I probably won 90%, and I've handled a bunch. I don't mention any of the losses. I've only had a few. But I remember them all. But I, but I, you know, I try to learn from any time. Any lawyer that tells you he's never lost a case, right, has never tried very many. Yeah. Okay, that's just the way it is. But it's um, um, there's a lot of it's a lot of human interest. It it teaches a lot if they look at it. It'll teach a lot of people about what their rights are, and their rights are under attack right now. By the way, I bet between the time I finished and the time the book got got published, book was published in April. In March, the Florida legislature went and changed the law to make it worse. We got a horrible legislature right now. It sounds like I mean, a great book for a law student. Well, it would be. You know something? I I was down at the Miami 
International uh, Book Fair. And uh, at least half of what I sold were to law students or to lawyers, yeah, including two lawyers on a, a firm that I've beaten a couple of times, a, a big defense firm. <laughs> but uh, I had an interesting discussion with the uh, with a, a tort professor from the University of Miami, and I'm supposed to go down and talk to her class. We're, we're trying to get the time worked out for that. They're on winter break right now, but uh, uh, I also expect to get a speaking engagement over the, at my law school. Um, the uh, I've had some discussions regarding that that hasn't been set yet, but it's really not not so much for lawyers, although a lawyer would like it. I have a good friend of mine that's an attorney up in uh, Melbourne, Florida, and he bought 25, which he is mailing to his legal friends all over the country. That's great. He's a, he's a top lawyer. He's a, he's a big guy, good guy. That's uh, that's what it's about. It's uh, it's about the civil the civil jury and civil uh, trial process. All the cases didn't result in trials. About, I'd say half of them in the book were settlements and the other half were probably trials that happened. Right. I've had about 150 civil jury trials over, over a career of 46 years, 47 years. That's great. That's not that many a year. You know, it's two or three a year. Right. And back in the old days before we had mandatory mediation, one year I had 11 trials. <laughs> That's a lot. Nowadays, two is a lot. Two or three is a lot nowadays. It's true. It's true. Um, But um, the old days, it was, you know, when they settled, oftentimes it was the morning you started the trial. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's... it's, uh, Didn't drag out. I never advertised. I've never been on television. I've never been on the radio. I've never had a billboard. You know, I just just, uh, made it on word of mouth and, and results and doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Have a real good day. You too. I found Ralph Peluso on his back porch lamenting a flooded golf course in Delaware. An accountant with a sense of humor. He got an MBA in finance, worked on Wall Street, then telecommunications, and he served as the literary editor for a monthly D.C. metro area newspaper. He's been exposed to some very interesting people and situations, which served as the uh, juice he squeezed for his book, Backstories, Skeletons, and Dirty Laundry. You know, I wrote my first book back in 2004, and I finished it in 2009, and it was based on the life and career of Babe Ruth. Um, you know, I used to I'd get up early in the morning and just start writing and write for a few hours and then go to work. And I wrote a couple of short story books, and I tried to get them published, but the publish, a lot of publishers didn't want to touch short stories for some reason. I don't know why. One day, the situation happened here in the community between couples and that's i said oh i have an idea for a story and that's when i wrote backstories <laughs> i actually wrote that in two oh. weeks <laughs> skeletons and dirty yeah. laundry well you know i think um everybody's lived in a town where there's shenanigans going on <laughs> yeah <laughs> what kind of shenanigans are we talking about are we exchanging keys well, in a bowl it should have been that simple they there was um my husband and wife that couple of kids married at least 40 45 years and, and then there was a, a self a same-sex gender relationship two women that were had been in that relationship for about 37 years and the wife and one of the partners took off <laughs> they shook the community broke up the marriage they went off into the sunset the husband went back to pennsylvania oh and the second partner still lives here i guess but that 
that led to, you know, a lot of consternation and thought. And then I sat back and said, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that because even in most families, it's it's not what people tell you oftentimes. It's what they hide. <laughs> that's where the story right. lies. And that's when I sat down and decided to put a novel together and came up with the concept of, of backstories. When I read your synopsis here, I was like, wow, uh, serial killer, con artist, dominatrix. I wonder if any of this is true. Like, well, you know, <laughs> what did you have to draw on? <laughs> yes, things things like that. Look, the best of fiction is something you happen that where you've saw inside your life that you've put down on paper and, and created it into something else, right? I, I say, you know, Shakespeare said the world is a stage and I tell tell people that every day there's an act out there you just have to look for it and so a lot of the bits and pieces of and details inside of backstories is actually things that i've come across in my life i'll tell you how i got the the dominatrix thing i was i was in my teens pumping gas in um working you know while i was going to college and uh there was a fellow a little older he's in his late 20s early 30s i guess I think if I remember correctly, his name was Otto, and he lived at the Y in Rochelle, of course. You know, you're a kid, naive. You don't know why people do that. And and he was the captain of the soft, the Y softball team. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so he 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 said, "You want to come play with us? We you know we go we go around and play Y's up all over the Westchester area because the Y was in Rochelle." And I said, "Sure, I'll play." And one time we were driving up in his car, and he was telling me, he asked me a question. He said. What's your thoughts on B and D? And I said, "What the hell is B and D?" <laughs> so he says, "Well, did you, hear, you ever hear of S and M?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Well, B and D is just a, a lighter version. It's bondage and discipline." I said, "Oh, no idea." So then he gave me a tutorial on what that meant. You know, I go like, "Okay, no, it doesn't sound like anything." So, kind of everybody, I'm sitting here. Here's this guy who's, you know, a happy-go-lucky, you know, free spirit. And and he's into bondage and discipline, you know. You know like, but that stuck with me a long time. And so that kind of where the domination <laughs> things entered into my mind to put it into a story. I mean, I think everybody keeps a history of all the odd things they've run into in their life. If they ever sat down, they could, you know, you have to draw from something to to create a story. There's a couple of main characters, but the real main character is Tommy McDonald. And he's a McDowell, I'm sorry. And he is obviously the patriarch of the family. Nice guy, perfect family, giving, you know, always gives to the church, always does this on Sunday, but never has time for his family because he wants to make sure that they're financially uh, secure uh, going forward. He wants to give them everything they've got. And in his absence, the vacuum that he created, you know, led his wife and children to all grow, secretly grow apart. The children made close, but they weren't honest with each other either. And his wife is a central, uh, a central character because she, she's a victim or a potential victim. He meets a female bodybuilder who, who was a dominatrix along the way. And she's a central character. And then you've got a cast of other characters. You've got the, the triplets, one of which is a con artist, one of which is a serial killer, and one of which is a comes in late to the game that's really the dim bulb in the trio of the of the triplets. 
So but this, you get captured in the first scene because the wife is getting ready for a date. She hasn't dated in 30 years. And she met this guy through a dating application. As most people do, they, they don't go hang out in bars. They go on you know, one of the 8,000 dating apps in the internet. But this guy's got strange requests. He wants her to dress up in a, a costume you know, with a mask. And he's going to come dressed as a fox. Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, because he's a furry. But it also hides his identity. And he convinced her that she needs to do this because this is the way people can be real because no one knows who they are. And they wouldn't reveal themselves until after the third day. So you get captured in that first thing, like, what the hell's going on here? And, you know, she reflects that that was, you know, three or two or three years from her divorce. So that's kind of sets the stage. And he turns out to be, he's a serial killer. Oh, my gosh. But she doesn't know it at the time. So you kind of get pulled in. And I, and I find that the read actually appeals more to female readers than it does to male readers. I found that the people who do read it, after getting into that, they generally finish inside of two days. Jeez. Okay, so who's reading your book? Are, are you doing book signings in the town where, where the, this stuff was going on? Yeah, I did, I did a book signing in, in Alexandria. I'm going to do one here in Bridgeville. But yeah, but see, the whole thing is, although it's based upon that, that was kind of the thing that kick-started the process but you wouldn't know from the book that it's because of an incident here okay. right that just got me going so like look at that family everybody thought they were perfect the, the two uh female partners have been going together for 37 years no problem this husband and wife happily married together for 45 years no problem and all of a sudden they disappear on each other yeah something there's a lot under that surface that we don't know about right. that's what kick-started the writing process the setting is in Boca Raton, Florida. Okay. And you know, one of the reasons I picked that, I, I needed a place with a small police department with very little violent uh, sexual crimes. Yeah. Because <laughs> you know, this way, something that's what the serial killer, where he targeted his victims because he would fly under the radar screen. Right, and he could because it was in a town where nobody would think that was even possible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. You Do you wind it up in this book, or is there a sequel? There's always a sequel because, you know, I was thinking about keeping the, te- the detective character, Walston, and, and actually bridging him into another novel. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for making yourself available for me today. I appreciate right. it. Thanks. Appreciate your time. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.